Amen. Good morning. Oh, uh, there we are. Hey, <clears throat> uh, before we go on, I just want a quick uh, tangent. Uh, you guys may have noticed that uh, more and more we've had the opportunity for uh, kind of more faces, more members of Olive Life Church to be up front, leading our worship, uh, getting more involved. Um, and that is really beautiful because that's what we are, right? We're not a performance. We are a group of people growing into the ability to like teach one another, exhort one another, encourage one another. So if you in any ways feel like you could never do that, it's likely that God has it in your future for you to be someone who makes disciples. All of us who call ourselves followers of Christ are meant to make disciples. Maybe that's never up here, but it for sure is at least out there. So if that interests you at all, um, we wanna kind of help with that. If you're interested in doing this in any ways, uh, just talk to Jared or myself. We want to see you guys grow in your ability and your desire to just like make much of God. Um, okay. So we are in the, I think it's, what is it, the seventh beatitude, something like that. Um, it is blessed are those, or blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. <clears throat> now, when I hear pure in heart, um, my honest immediate reaction is I immediately disqualify myself. Um, I shy away from the total message of God's grace that is in Matthew. I don't know if you are the same, but I have an internal sense of disharmony with the word pure, right? Um, so even though I know, like my brain knows, nothing in the Beatitudes justifies me, right? The Beatitudes is not my to-do list. That We've talked about this over and over and over. Nothing justifies me, but it feels that they sure as heck can disqualify me. So part of this for me is before I moved to Idaho, I, I went to a Christian middle and high school. Uh, and with that school, when you go into eighth grade, um, there's a special purity banquet. And this is kind of uh, part of their, their good intentioned effort of helping uh, young people follow God's plan for male, female sexuality prior to marriage, which is abstinence. That is God's good plan. Uh, and so in this purity banquet, each kid gifted their child a, a ring. And this was kind of like their promise to save themselves prior to marriage, to stay pure prior to marriage. Uh, and now I wore it, <laughs> but as a teenage boy with access to the internet, um, I have my own past with sexual impurity. Um, so subconsciously, I hear the P word and it immediately gets associated with my past of sexual misconduct, which is an area of deep vulnerability. So immediately I harbor shame. I disqualify myself from this beatitude. Internally, I might say I can become more good. I can become more kind. I can become more generous, but pure, like that's out of reach. Um, so that's my own just natural. When I stumble across, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's my immediate gut reaction. But we all know when we in engage with scripture, we need to set aside our kind of pre-existing definitions or pre-existing ideas. And we need to approach God with kind of a clean slate and create definitions based on what's in front of us, right? Set aside our, our pre-existent stuff and approach it fresh. So I have to ask, what is purity? What does it mean to be pure in heart? And is there more to the holiness of God than only like the sexual twist of purity, right? Is there something more to it? Something that makes him more deep, more lovely, more beautiful, more desirable? So 
Um, that's kind of what we're going to do today, is we're going to approach this um, asking, what does it actually mean? Um, now, notice that all of the Beatitudes, right, we've touched on this over and over, uh, Jesus spoke them to a present human audience. There were real-life human beings standing in front of him, and he spoke to them. As he did so, he had a, a temporal, like, here and now message, but it was also more than only a behavioral ethic. Um, as he spoke to them, he also spoke like past them to this idea of like there were echoes of eternity with what he was saying. So he wasn't just saying blessed or like blessed are you when you're pure, then you see God. He's speaking to this future reality of being pure and seeing God. So to understand that sense of like here and now, but also future and blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. We're gonna kind of go through three steps. If you guys uh, have done discovery Bible study with us, it, it's a really simple way of studying the Bible and it has three stages. You observe, then you interpret, and then you apply. So for us today, um, observation just means translating the sentence. Like, what is this sentence actually saying? Then, and so with that, we're just gonna look at like observationally, on the surface, what could it mean? Then we're gonna dive below the surface into interpretation. So this is using the context of Jesus's broader teaching. How do we interpret the essence of that message? What was Jesus intending to communicate? And that, this is really where we're gonna see the kind of like here and now, the temporal, but also these echoes of eternity. That's where that's really gonna rise to the surface. And then the last step is just application. That's how does Jesus's intended message of purity, how does it sink into the soil of our heart and create transformation? So seeing God is both like a result of being made pure, but also our process of purification. That's like this application, that seeing God is part of our application. So here's my whole message in three sentences, okay? This is what I, I want us to hear today. One, we observe that Jesus cares about purity all the way to the core of who you and I are. And this degree of purity is required to be in the presence of God who is holy. We interpret that Jesus is not condemning those who are impure. He's offering his own purity and his life as a gift. And we apply this by choosing to leave behind our self-justification or our self-purification and we rest in his purity gifted to us. So that's what we're doing, okay? So we're gonna start with observation. And we're gonna look at, um, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We're gonna start with the first section, pure in heart. And we're gonna look at heart first, okay? Because it's, it's probably the simplest to understand. So uh, a commentator uh, that we've been using, Dale Bruner, uh, he says this in his commentary. He says, it is surprising to see what Jesus blesses. The teachers of Jesus's time, they blessed especially scripture study, then faithfulness and observing or obeying scripture. But in the Beatitudes, remarkably, it is difficult to put one's finger on a specific activity that is blessed, on any concrete doing, like scripture study, a definite kind of social work, or even like times or words of prayer or ways of prayer. In the Beatitudes, Jesus seems to bless people at center, where they are most themselves. In Hebrew psychology, heart is literally the human center. It is the home of personal feeling, will, and thinking. 
As I hear Bruner, I, I see that Bruner's understanding is it's aligned with the teachings of Jesus. Um, Jesus also spoke of the heart as being the central core, like the source of all the externalities for us. Out of our heart, our source comes good or evil. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, he's speaking um, at some, some Pharisees who are hypocrites, and he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good externally when you are evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he's portraying out of the core of us, everything else flows. So Jesus is making this really clear connection that the entirety of me has a capacity for good or evil. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he's looking at this idea of heart and center, he says, um, blessed are those who are pure, not merely on the surface, but in the center of their being, the source of every activity. It is as deep as that. We see that this raises the stakes. It's not just can you do the right things, but can you be pure? Now, as we look at purity, uh, the Greek word is katharos. Um, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I had to just like look this up and did some like researching um, through Strong's Concordance. But simply put, uh, this, this word um, means without admixture, which just means it's unmixed. There's no mingling. So um, there is a thing and all the impurities are separated out of it. Therefore, it's clean, it's pure, it's thoroughly itself. All contaminants have been removed. Now, within language, like Greek language, um, that word can just mean clean. Uh, it can mean unstained, untainted. Uh, and that could be either literally, like my drink could be clean, or it could be spiritually, right? Me, the core of who I am, can be clean or full of contaminants, right? <clears throat> so as we understand it within Scripture, uh, it could just mean like guiltless. It could mean innocent, righteous, all contaminants have been separated. All that's left is righteousness and innocence. It could also have implications of being purified by God. But ultimately, it means that all influence of sin have been removed. We are pure. Now, Bruner, as he's kind of wrestling with this, he says we can translate pure in heart, therefore, as clear or clean at center, Right? And then he, he takes that a step further through into the step of application. He says, Jesus is probably blessing persons centered on God. Now, that feels like it might be kind of moving to left field, but I don't think it is at all. Uh, if you guys are familiar with um, the great commandment, it, it begins in the Old Testament, but Jesus rephrases it in Matthew chapter 22. Um, uh, a, a young man comes up to him and says, teacher, Jesus, is the greatest commandment in the law or the instruction. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, heart, soul, mind, the core of who you are is pure in its love and its devotion for God. And out of that comes an external obedience, a love of neighbor. So I, I think we, it's right, like Bruner saying, this centered on God to understand purity as meaning like a whole, a flawless love of God. It then results in external behavior that's motivated by our love of God. Now remember the very beginning? Uh, so this does include sexuality. 
God does have a plan for male-female sexuality in and outside of marriage, and it's good, but it's also much more than that. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole is Jesus's moral illustration. So he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are pure in heart, the person who's 100% loves the Lord with their heart, soul, mind, this is how they will behave. This is how they'll behave with their sexuality, with their legal systems, with the way they treat their neighbors, the way they respond when someone harms them. This is how a pure in heart person lives. Now there's the, the other part, right? Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Observationally, like what does seeing God mean? That's a, a, a really great question. Uh, so in the ultimate sense, seeing God just means having full admission into his unveiled presence. You're seeing him. Like you're seeing him for who he is. There's nothing between you. There's no sin, there's no veil, there's no distance, there's no rituals. You are seeing him as he's with you. And this ultimately is like the entire ambition of faith, of any religion, but especially of Christianity to be with God there is no greater reward, no greater joy, no greater goal than seeing God with nothing between us. So that's observation. As we move into interpretation, like what do we do with that? What is Jesus intending to communicate? We've seen some highlights. Now, how do we go the next step deeper? Um, so to help with interpreting that, uh, I've chosen to show a video. Uh, it's about five minutes. It is about God's holiness. Um, and I've chosen because it is really, really helpful and it gives us kind of some shared understanding, some shared ideas. Um, and really what it shows us in a, in a quick five minute thing is it shows us that the story of the Bible is all about God's overarching holiness. It's about how he created a pure universe and people. And then the Bible follows our fall into impurity and then how God plans and does purify and restore his creation. So this video has, um, all of it's helpful. Some of it is more relevant to today than other parts. So there's three things I want you to just like really, really hone in on, okay, that I've chosen this for. Uh, the first thing is notice that the impure or the unholy just factually cannot exist in the presence of God, in the unveiled presence of God. Notice that this is not so much a punishment as it is just an impossibility. Uh, second thing to notice is that there's a form of purity that comes through our doing, it's through our obedience. And notice how fragile it is. Notice how quickly it's contaminated. And lastly, notice um, that God's plan actually centers on a second form of purity. It's the second form of purity that comes from him in rescue and it transforms us in a way that is incorruptible, okay? So with that, I'm gonna step down, and would you guys play that video? You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. 
So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, this hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable. Because normally, if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know. 
until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus, but instead Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so, this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So, this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but... Where's this all heading? So, the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time, it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. Blessed are the pure in heart, right? They will see God. Uh, You see that this video ends with revelation, right? It ends with this idea that all of the world is the temple, the location of God's holy unveiled presence. And from it is flowing life and holiness and goodness. And we are part of that new reality. So this is the eternal uh, implication, right? Remember we talked about kind of the human on human temporal right now, implications, but we also talked about the echoes of eternity. This is where it ends, those echoes of eternity. The beatitude we see is aligned with that plan, God's plan to purify his people, all of his creation, to bring them back to this state of being holy, flawlessly in love with him, right? Participating in his presence. That is the end point, right? That's the ambition of everything, And you'll notice that uh, as this video really explains so clearly, it is because we will be pure, we'll be able to enjoy the unveiled presence of God. Our purification, our entire purification needs to be part of that rescue plan in order for us to enjoy it. But now I want you to think about this eternal perspective. You, pure, in the unveiled life-giving presence of God, So you, as God has made you, pure. The beauty of who he has designed you to be, created you to be, the love he's invested in you, but free of sin, right? Free of those contaminants. So you, minus the jealousy, minus the anger, minus the insecurity, minus the fear, minus all the bad stuff, the beauty of who God has made you to be. In the unveiled presence of God, and not just the boring, like, curmudgeon God, but this is the God who designed the universe. This is the God who, like, created chrysanthemums, who said they're going to be lovely and delicate and colorful. I'm going to populate those all over. This is the God who, like, invented the flavor of mangoes. Like, juicy, scrumptious, like, tongue-tingling mangoes. He thought that would be a good idea. 
This is the God who is so full of patience, so full of kindness. This is the God who literally loves you to the point he would die for you. That's this eternal reality. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, you will see God. The echo of eternity is you, purified 100% in the unveiled, beautiful presence of God. And that is really, really good news. But Jesus also talks to real life human beings, face to face. So there's a here and now implication, right? And so uh, I'm gonna break this kind of temporal interpretation part to um, seeing God and then pure in heart. So we're gonna look at seeing God. What does Jesus mean? So obviously eternally, he says, you will see God unveiled face to face. But what about right now? Is it um, hopefully one day you'll see God? Or is he saying you also now are blessed and you will see God? Um, We see that Jesus answers this through the book of John. In John chapter one, he says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son, speaking of himself, who is himself God, who's in closest relationship with the father, Jesus has made him known. That same book, a few chapters later in chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, right? We're familiar with this. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he continues. He says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So we see Jesus in this beatitude. He's, he's literally saying, through knowing me, through seeing me, you see the Father. You grow in your understanding of him, your knowledge of him. Uh, Martin Luther has a quote, and he says this. He says, uh, in scriptural language, to see God's face means to recognize him correctly as a gracious and a faithful father on whom you can depend for every good thing. But this only happens through faith in Christ. Christ reveals the father. It is a wonderful thing, the treasure beyond every thought or wish knowing that you are standing and living in right relation to God. And that is only revealed through Christ, only through the narrative of Christ, the recorded history of Christ, do we actually know that. So it's because we see and know the Son, we now have this new way of understanding the countenance and the character of God. We see God, we see his face more for understanding him through Christ. But there's more, there's one step further to this. If you guys remember uh, the first chapter of Acts, Jesus has died, he was resurrected, and the Acts opens where he's basically hanging out with his friends and he's continuing to teach. But right before he ascends back into heaven, um, he, he tells his disciples like, stay here, wait. I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit to you, wait for this. Uh, 1 Corinthians explains that a little bit, this idea that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is with us. Um, And uh, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter two. It says, uh, Paul writes, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. So his spirit reveals things about God. He says, the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. No one knows the thoughts of God except for the spirit of God. And what we've received is not the spirit of the world, but we've received the spirit who's from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. And then Paul clarifies, the person without the spirit 
does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but they consider those things foolishness. And they cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So it's pretty clear. Jesus is saying, like, you see God through me, through my life, through my countenance, but you also have the Spirit within you that helps you see God, know God. He reveals the truth of God to you. He breathes life into Scripture. Without the Spirit to illuminate this and show this what this actually means, it would just be a riddle. And so temporally, that is what seeing God means here and now. When Jesus was talking to real life human beings, he's saying, blessed are the pure in heart, you'll see God. That's what he's saying. It's through me, through the spirit, you know God. What did he mean then for like right now, here and now, real life human beings being pure in heart? Um, how do we become pure in heart? I think that's the question that lingers with me. So like the coal from Isaiah, the video that we watched, Jesus is like the dense embodiment of God's pure holiness. He's God in flesh. And so Jesus is this searing and this powerful presence that's not threatened by our contamination. So when Jesus reaches out to us, he doesn't become impure through contact with us, but rather his touch purifies us. His touch, regardless of sin, cleanses us. It heals us. This brings us towards our, our application. Like, what do we do with that? Like, that's a weird idea that the touch of Jesus, the presence of Jesus purifies us, cleanses us. I think before we consider application, we need to ask, am I pure? Do I need to be purified? I think there's an honest assessment that needs to occur here. Um, D.A. Carson in his commentary gives a couple of really um, cutting questions that really quickly, like, they're not intrusive, but they really quickly kind of like get past some of our barriers. Uh, and so he asks these couple things. He says, so if you would think about these right now, there, although it, there's probably lots more here to consider later, but what do you think about when your mind slips into neutral? He asks, how much acceptance do you have for deception, no matter how skillful or slight? How much acceptance for shady humor, no matter how funny? What extent are your actions and your words, are they accurate reflections of what's in your heart? And then the final one, and I think the most revealing for me, to what extent do your actions and words constitute a cover-up for what is in your heart? Because it's entirely possible to look really pure and holy on the outside and still have impurity within us, in our core, in the center of who we are. Now, I don't want you to feel threatened by that because entirely my goal is to help us see ourselves as we really are in order to move forward. And I want to remind us, like, help us move forward with this simple quote by um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, who are the pure in heart? They are those who are mourning about the impurity of their hearts. <laughs> the pure in heart are those who look inside and say, I'm impure. 
and their heart breaks, those are the only ones who are moving towards actual center of their being purity. So application, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, and Jesus is this coal, this purifying touch, like how do we engage with that? Well, so through all of scripture, there's two paths to purity. The first path is the law, right? There's good and wrong behavior, good and wrong ways of thinking, being, living. And so God gives us the law as a written code. It's good conduct, good thinking, good living. Uh, Some of it, especially the Old Testament was symbolic. There were like symbolic laws that pointed to deeper spiritual realities. Um, But he also wrote this law of inside of us. It's what we call our conscience, right? We naturally intuit, should not harm people for the pleasure of it. I should not kill, steal, right? All those things we naturally have the law in us that convicts us and that's good. And God gave us the law, both kind of in written form, but also inside of us uh, in order to display our need for purity. And as we engage some of those laws, um, as we take those lawful impulses, I know from experience, what we do is we kind of like add or we remove or we kind of like tweak like God's law. Um, And we do that kind of based on our own life history or our culture. But then what we do is we use those things as our personal path to holiness, especially that law that's in our heart, those internal voices that convict us. But remembering the video, like the purity that comes from the law is equivalent to the ritual purity from that video. It's fragile. At the touch of failure, the result is we become unclean. And because we are unclean and impure, we become unable to be in the presence of God. If I may, um, I would like to speak pastorally for a moment. And I'd like to ask you, um, what is the impurity that you are wrestling with? What's the thing that makes you unholy? What does the inner voice accuse you of? And how do you attempt to purify yourself? We all do. We have the the convictions, like the ways, the things we accuse ourselves of. And then we have like these little pathways towards holiness, these correctives. Sometimes they're good, but in many ways they're our path to holiness. I've done this thing, I feel impure. Now I must do this to become kind of good, have good standing again. I find regularly for me, whether it's big or small, when I feel that I failed, uh, I feel unfit for God's presence. And the, the natural result is I kind of like, okay, God, I really wanna spend time with you, but that's awkward and I don't feel good for that. So hang on, I'm gonna go over here and get like a track record of good behavior behind me, and then I'm gonna come back. I find that's the way that my heart naturally works. 
So maybe for you, it's like a, a big step of atonement. Maybe it's, I'll be ready to be in God's presence when I've proven myself for a week or five years. Once I have a month under my belt without yelling, then I'll know that like my anger's gone enough for me to be in God's presence. And so what is that for you? What is the thing that makes you impure? And what is your attempt to purify yourself? And none of this um, do I say to guilt trip you. Uh, entirely my motivation is I wanna extend Jesus's offer that there's a better way. There's a better way for us to deal with that. Like I said, there's two paths to purity. There is the law, the fragile form of obedience and purity. And it's haunted by those voices that accuse us in the back of our heads. But there's a second way, and this is Christ. This is that, that, that coal of Isaiah, this burning, searing, like condensed holiness of God embodied. And it's his touch, right? His touch, his presence purifies us regardless of sin, whether it's past, present, or future. In Romans chapter eight, um, Paul, he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through Christ, the law of the spirit gives life and he has set you free from the law of sin and death. Saying the first path to purity is the law and the law will only result in sin and death. But there's a better way. He's saying through Christ, there's zero condemnation. There's a new law of life, the spirit in you, God's holiness, his purity in you. And this is the second way, purity as gift. Not purity through the law, but purity as gift. And this is the purity of Christ, God's own holiness that's gifted that you wear as you come under him. And he applies this purity in our standing before God. Romans chapter eight continues to say, like Jesus literally represents us before God, his holiness covering us. And he promises that our future purity, this like eternal echo, this you completely free of sin, that is guaranteed to happen through the purity of Christ. It's guaranteed that pure you will be in the unveiled presence of the God who made you. That's good news. But until that point, so that is the gift of purity. But until that point of eternity, the reality is we are not instantly right now made pure. Is anyone here pure, 100%? Okay, I didn't think so. Um, none of us, right? None of us, I say that kind of jokingly, but none of us is free of sin in the here and now. In the eternity, it's guaranteed. We have hope in that, we look forward to that. But in the here and now, we have the testimony of Christ, we have the gift of new hearts, and we have the spirit within us. And those three things combined, the testimony of Christ, new hearts capable of loving him, and his spirit within us, those lead us on a journey of purification in the here and now. You're not stuck in your sin. You're not stuck impure. You will become more and more pure. And so that means that purity here and now is a struggle. I know I feel this. <laughs> if I'm pure, why do I feel so impurely? Why, like, why do I act so impurely? 
<clears throat> Remember, I, uh, I read Romans chapter eight. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've been set free from the law of sin and death. Five sentences before that is Romans chapter seven. Uh, and this is what it says. And so I'm just gonna read you a large chunk of this. And I'm choosing a, a paraphrase of the Bible called the message uh, because it's so, so helpful. And I just could not say it better than this. So if you would, this is not on the screen. If you would just listen, this is in really easy language and I hope it's helpful. This is from Romans chapter seven. I know that all of God's commands are spiritual, but I am not. Isn't that also your experience? Yeah, I am, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide to go one way, but then I act another. I do things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what's best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command, his instruction is necessary but I need something more. I know the law and I still can't keep it. And if the power of sin within me is sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I do not have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions such as they are my decisions don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and it gets the better of me every time. And this happens so regularly, it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly, I delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Part of me is covertly rebel. Just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something different. This is Paul. This is like, Paul saw the resurrected Jesus face to face. Paul was one of a handful of men that started the church. And he's writing this to his friends in a letter. Obviously that's modern language, but that's the essence of what he's saying. But notice, what is his solution? As he's saying, I'm back and forth, I'm divided. He ends by saying, thank God, Jesus Christ can and does. And then he moves on to Romans chapter eight, where he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has died to the law of sin and death, so I can be free to life and purity in the spirit. So what Paul does, like this application component for us, is he's literally putting down his self-created purity. He's just like, I, I can't, I need help. He's putting away his self-created purity and he rests in the gift of Christ. He says, thank God, Christ can and he does. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But if you read more of Paul's letters, you also know Paul's a guy that gets after it. Paul's not a sloth. Paul doesn't let people get away with sin. Like he's devoted to purity. And it's because he first rests in the purity that Christ gives him. From that place of rest and security, then he works to obey. I can be done or I can give you a quick story. What do you want? Okay, great. <laughs> um, part of the way that this works out, uh, this idea of resting first, struggling later. Gift first, struggle later. Um, you guys know me. I like to work on things in my garage. I was um, working on something and I had to go to Ace and I had to buy four nuts and eight washers. Each nut cost 40 cents. There's four of them. How much is that worth? Buck 60, right? I have eight washers. They're each also 40 cents. How much is that worth? 320. Combined, what's that worth, Nicole? 480. I owe Ace $4.80. I go up to the cash register and I say, hello, kind sir. I have four nuts and eight washers. These are worth 40. These are worth 40. And he goes, do you have an Ace Rewards number? <laughs> so he rings me up, right? Boop, 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 boop. And then he says, okay, you owe me a buck oh eight. Sweet, thanks. Stick the card in, get the receipt, walk out the door. And I'm internally in this moment thinking like, sweet, I just scored $3 worth of nuts and washers. <laughs> like, he didn't know better. It was his mistake, right? So I got in the car and I turned on to Celtis. And as I'm driving away, you will see God by the spirit within you. The spirit of God knocks on my stupid skull and says, Trevor, you're stealing. You're being dishonest. You're deceiving someone. No matter how skillful or slight, you're deceiving someone. You're living in a deceitful way. I shift into third gear, get up to 35 miles an hour. <laughs> As I am approaching the stoplight, um, it's, it's fine. It's, it's like $2. God, it's, it's three bucks. It was his mistake. No big deal. I make the left onto bay. <laughs> And God within me is saying, Trevor, are you going to ignore me? You don't have the privilege of ignoring me when it's convenient and asking for my presence when you want me. Are you gonna be pure in heart and see me and seek me? Or are you going to be totally satisfied with purity when it's convenient and only seek me when you want me? Those things are not, they don't go hand in hand. It can't be one way or the other. So I downshifted into second, hit the turn signal, flipped a Yui, went back to Ace. And I told the guy, hey, I think I owe you some more money. And he goes, oh, okay. <laughs> these are, there's four of them. It's a dollar 60 and there's eight of these. It's 320, I should owe you. And he's like, oh, well, I charged you for all the nuts. I just didn't charge you for, one of the for most of the washers. It's like, okay, well, you also didn't charge me enough for the washer that you did charge me for. Okay, so should I charge you for seven washers or eight? Eight. 
And the guy's like, man, you're digging yourself in a hole. Because I basically kept saying like, no, I owe you more. No, I owe you more. No, I owe you more. And then when he said, are you, okay, you're, you're close. You still owe me a little bit more. Are we good? And I had to say, no, I owe you more. This is that choice though, because I, as stupid as this is, right? To be frank, like it's silly. It's three bucks. This is my struggle for purity. This is me. I, I, I could have gotten home and put the washers and nuts on the thing and said, boy, I'm really glad I get a rest in Christ. It's a good thing because I needed help. I am impure. I need Christ to save me. I could have done that. But I don't think that would have been leaning myself in the direction of loving God in a wholehearted way. So from the, the inner part of me that struggles with sin, but desires ultimately to live in accordance with him, out of that came obedience. So for us, this is the struggle. But there was an important turning point in the car when I downshifted into second. It was not because I know Christ, through Christ I know the Father, I know that his position was not standing over me saying, Trevor, if you don't turn around now, you're done. He was saying, Trevor, I've secured your spot in my family. You are a son of mine. Will you act like it? You're not gonna lose that. I'm your father, but will you act like it? Will you be made more into who I'm making you into now? And I had to struggle with that. And it was small and therefore it's easy to say. There's lots of bigger things that are, Struggles that last weeks and years, right? Those struggles are real too. But I give you this silly one, so I hope it can put some handholds for us as we move forward. We've been touched. For those of us that trust Christ, put our hope in him, we've been touched by him. Like this pure presence of holiness and purity that has cleansed you. You're good. You are guaranteed in his family. So now we can struggle. We can lean into the purity together. Would you guys pray with me? And then we'll take communion. Jesus, thank you for revealing the Father. Thank you that you came so we can see and know God. We can know that his posture is not condemnation. His posture is to save those who can't save themselves. His posture is that you, you, he loves us you are purifying us. You will purify us eternally. Lord, we love you. Amen. Church, um, if you are wrestling, if you are wrestling and struggling with your own internal impurity, it's evidence of God's transformation of you. If you're feeling in your roots, if you're feeling in your bones, that you are impure and unfit for the presence of God who is holy, the weight of your sin is a gift. It's not meant to crush you. It's meant to purify you. Because unless you feel the weight of your own impurity, you will never rest in his. Instead, we will continue on the, trouble, the, the treadmill of self-purification. So this is gift to us. If you're feeling that sense that I am impure, it's evidence that he loves you and he's working in you. I've chosen to read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 as we leave. Therefore, since we have these promises, 
of his purity, his goodness, his rescue, dear friends. Now let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Church, he loves you. He is purifying you and he will purify you and you do and you will see God. I hope you guys have a great week.